We're going to kind of close up our, uh, our little five weeks together on living life on purpose. And uh, as we've mentioned these last couple of weeks, uh, we're at a place where uh, if you've not come to understand that there is a, a father that loves you, who wants you to have the sweet stuff, if you're still at a place where uh, you're wrestling with whether or not there's anybody that you have uh, that you can consult with, a God that cares, who desires not to push you towards things that are going to take life from you, but in fact push you to where the sweet life is, then some of what we're going to talk about doesn't make that much sense. So after a couple of weeks, we said, you know, at sooner or later you come to a point where you've got to make a decision because your life is going to be influenced by the, the choices and decisions you make. We'll kind of close that loop today a little bit, but we want to build off the idea that, uh, that each of us has an opportunity to be faithful in what it is that God designed us for. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, there's a story about him that during the Civil War, he would often sneak away and uh, would, would just go to different places of worship, different places where men were supposed to provide a perspective that was going to give him comfort and direction and hope as a leader to our country in its war-torn state. And he often wouldn't announce that he was there. He would sit back in a study and just listen with an aide that would arrange with different people and then move out so he wouldn't make a big scene. And uh, his aide always used to love to ask him when he was leaving a situation like that if he enjoyed the speaker, if the speaker did a good job. And there was one time that uh, there was a guy that uh, gave a pretty stirring message in the view of uh, Lincoln's aide. And he, on the way back of the carriage, said to Lincoln, said, hey, how do you think the pastor did? And he said, I think the pastor failed. And the aide was shocked. He said, what do you mean? What was it? Did you not think that, uh, that, that he was uh, consistent in his reasoning? Lincoln said, no, he was extremely consistent in his reasoning. There was nothing wrong with his reasoning. His flow was logical. Well, did you feel like his presentation was poor? He didn't know his material well. I said, no, not at all. He was extremely put together in his uh, material and what he said. He, he spoke uh, without much pause, without much hesitation. He spoke with a sense of conviction about what he was sharing. He said, well, then why did he fail? And Lincoln looked at him and said, the man failed because he failed to ask of us something great. In other words, there wasn't a call that was placed out. There wasn't any action point. There wasn't any real uh, statement that said, if this is true, then this is what it should produce in your life. And what it should produce in your life ought to be a source of challenge and growth for you. And I'll tell you what, I may make a lot of mistakes today, but I'm not going to fail because I failed to ask of you something great. And that's to challenge you to be ultimately the kind of person that the Lord designed you to be and participate in the kind of life that God wanted you to participate in and to do that with reckless abandon and with ruthless discipline. And it's going to take ruthless discipline. You're going to find out that a lot of guys enjoy talking about what a purpose-driven life might be like. A lot of guys enjoy uh, considering what they might do to give their life more meaning, significance, and purpose, but not very many guys finish well. 550 plus guys will show up and, uh, and, and start something like this, you know, and you'll wean off about 150 of that before you get to the end of even five weeks. 400 guys will come out of here today with a sense of having processed different ideas throughout five weeks and the percentage of men that will really have this take root in their life and produce something sustaining is going to be tragically small. I was just uh, the last couple of days up in uh, Missouri with some folks and uh, sharing, doing some speaking up there. And one of the things that came up in the midst of where I was, which is a place where a lot of my roots are, where I shared a lot of my ministry uh, early in my, in my years, five of the ten guys that were in my wedding uh, 
have, have dropped out of what we had kind of all been partnering with together because of moral failure. Five of the ten guys that stood with me in my wedding 12 or 13 years ago are no longer running the race. Now, one of them actually, uh, you know, made some decisions along the way and has faced him and responded to him like a man should because none of us are, are going to be uh, without blemish in every area of our life. And this guy's uh, issue wasn't so tremendous that it violated his ability to have respect from people for an ongoing period. It was more of an addictive uh, response to something. And, and he's worked through it, faced it, brought it to the light, and is actually now back in a very good place. But four of those five are still running. And, are, and have dropped off. They haven't finished well. And I can tell you that I know for a fact, I used to stay up late at night with these guys, dreaming, talking to them about what it was they wanted their life to stand for at the end of the days. But they didn't have, at the end of the day, what it took to be a man that lived life with discipline and on purpose. At the root of that is they had a failure to understand that it wasn't going to be their desire that sustained them and held them. I think it's one of the biggest surprises that men... Uh, find out when they move into a marital relationship. They don't get married until they have this feeling they felt like they've never felt before, which they somehow call love, because they think, man, I've never felt this way about a woman before, so I'm going to get married to her, and because I feel this way about her, it'll be a great relationship. And they're shocked when they get into marriage to find out that no matter how you felt before you get married, sooner or later in every relationship, you move to a place where you have got to be a disciplined individual who loves because you said you'd love, who sticks in it because you said you'd stick in it. And a lot of guys start to fall prey to the notion that, wow, I must have married the wrong guy. I must be doing the wrong thing because, uh, the wrong gal. Uh, I must have, uh, must have married the wrong gal because, uh, it's not as easy here anymore to want to love her. In fact, I, I find it easier to somehow be attracted to this person over here at work or someone I'm sharing some new ideas with than it is to love this person at home. And so they start to waver and waffle, and they don't realize that love, biblically, is a verb uh, which describes how you will live and not an adjective which describes how you'll feel. Proverbs talks about the fact that the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. What that proverb means is that both the sluggard and the disciplined want the same thing. And what makes a difference in the two of them is that one of them applies diligence and discipline to their life, which is a fruit of the presence of God. We have a purposeful God. We have a God that is perfect in his desires being accomplished. And when you live in relationship with him, and when he controls your life as you depend upon him, one of the things that will mark your life that is part of the glory of God, is that you would be a man that lives your life on purpose. But I'm going to tell you, it is in your nature, it is in my nature to want good things, but not to discipline myself towards those things. Not to yield myself to the will and way of God so that I might be who God wants me to be. There's not a man in this room who wants their life to be floundering, meaningless and off-center. But there's not going to be enough men in this room that bear the fruit of self-discipline in their life that allows them to finish well. Now, one of the great uh, tragedies that was waiting for me when I got home from Missouri was my, uh, uh, my four-year-old boy. And each of them have something different to share with me. And, and last night, Cooper came in my study, and he dropped down a 100-piece Cinderella puzzle. And he laid it right there at my feet. He said, Dad, 
Cinderella is missing two pieces. And he was saying, it's the, the other 98 are pretty much worthless, because I, for the first time, on my own, put together Cinderella, and we're missing, you know, the top of the mouse, Gus's head's not there, all right, and part of the carriage wheel is gone. And so this puzzle is pretty much worthless, because something that's supposed to be there isn't showing up where it was supposed to be. Gang, let me tell you why this is a big deal we're talking about this morning. Because in God's grand design, he created you for a purpose. He created you for a mission. He created you uniquely. And when we live out of step with who God wants us to be, there is a hole in the puzzle that God intended. Now, God is sovereign enough that he will put that picture together one day, but you will miss out on the blessing of participating with him at creating the glorious picture that he intended with your life. And there's always a consequence to not stepping up the way that you want to step up. There are opportunities to shepherd young men and young women that are represented by men in this room. That those young, and young, young men and young women in the households of men in this room are not being shepherded well because you're not in that puzzle right now. You're not letting God uniquely use you in the way that he shaped you and called you and formed you to use you. There are women that are frustrated that they're going through life without a man that's going to serve them and cherish them and honor them because there's some guys in this room that aren't in place the way that God wants them to be. There are people in this town that are suffering because the body of Christ is not doing what God wants it to do because men in this room are not stepping up to say, I'm going to live my life intentionally, on purpose, the way that God designed me to be. If you are not living your life in the context of a relationship with God, fully availing yourself to Him, discovering, developing, and unleashing and deploying your gifts the way that God intended you to, there is a tragedy somewhere where some kid's saying, this doesn't look like it should look. And in too many times, the pieces that fit that puzzle to make it look like God wanted to look are sitting right here. And the reason churches aren't functioning in a prevailing way that God wants it to is because there's all kinds of men that are out there in the body that are listening and watching and not participating to fulfill their unique design that God gave them. And that's what this whole series has been about, is understanding that part of what God is doing in your life is to allow you to reach your maximum potential for Him. That, folks is where life is, where joy is, and where purpose is. Now let me just read you a little section of Scripture. It's one of my favorite sections of Scripture. Uh, it's in Mark chapter 10, 35 through 45. It's right there before you. I'll just tell you uh, that there's a couple of guys in this room that about, I think it's seven or eight years ago now, at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon on this September day, I got a phone call knowing that I was from St. Louis saying, Hey, Todd, do you think there's any way we could go to the Cardinal game tonight? I said, what are you talking about? They go, well, you know, McGuire's got 61 home runs. This is a historic time in baseball. Do you think there's any way that we can get ourselves up to St. Louis? I, I get a ticket. I go, who cares if we get a ticket? It's 3 o'clock. The first pitch is at 7, you know, 15. What's the matter? They go, hey, I, I, I've got a guy that I think if we can get tickets, will let us jump on his plane with him and go up there. So, you know, through a long series of events, I called up to some folks I knew in St. Louis and they made some phone calls of folks in St. Louis who told us that we were crazy for even asking. They said the Bush family has called down here looking for extra tickets for their friends. And they told them, forget it, no way. So another one of my friends got a hold of this. He called a friend of his that used to work for the Cardinals who now work for the Rangers. And that guy laughed and said, you've got to be out of your mind. Right now it's about 4.30. And he said, I'll tell you what, if those guys can get here, I'll give them some standing room on tickets because we are sold out. Lo and behold, at 5.15 I found myself at Love Field. 
at 5.30. I was in a conversation with a guy, in fact, we were talking about some pretty difficult stuff. And uh, that phone call came back. You know, actually, my office phone rang. I didn't answer it. I could hear my secretary's phone ring. I could hear my cell phone ring. And finally, I heard the knock at my door. And my secretary said, Todd, you need to pick up this phone call. And they, they go, we got the tickets. And I hung it up. I said, oh, this, this time's pretty much over at this point. All right, I got to go, man. I'm going to St. Louis. <laughs> so, uh, so we got to Love Field. We flew up there. We, we got delayed around Arkansas because of some bad weather. We landed. Uh, you know, at Lambert Field in St. Louis, we raced to that stinking stadium. We got there in the top of the fourth inning with two outs. Got our tickets at Will Call, ran in there, ran to the left field foul pole, and seven minutes after we got there, about 25 yards from us, we watched McGuire hit his 60-second home run. It was, a, it was a great evening. We, we could not believe he did it. We couldn't believe we got there. We couldn't believe we got to share in that moment. But I'll tell you why I share that with you, because in the midst of that happening, they, they put a big picture of Roger Maris up there on the screen. And that picture of Maris in the summer of 61 when he had a 61st home run. And underneath that, they had a little picture of McGuire. And then Roger Maris's family there. Now, Roger Maris wasn't there. Does anybody know why Roger Maris wasn't there? Yeah, he was dead. He was dead. And, and, but up there, there was this great picture of Roger Maris hitting his home run. And it said, Chasing Immortality. And I just sat there, and I mean, the world was going crazy. And everybody was thinking, this guy just did it. He just became immortal. He just became baseball single-season home run king. He just became as immortal as, as, as that dead guy up there. And, 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 I, and I just thought of the irony of the situation. You know, and nobody would have supposed that there'd have been somebody else on as much steroids as McGuire that just three years later could shatter his record, but it happened. And so his immortality didn't even last 30 years. It only lasted three. And I just thought to myself, how what a great picture of how fleeting the things that we throw ourselves at to make ourselves essentially great. And just how nobody was even bothered by the fact that you can be this immortal. You can, you can do something that for 30 years folks will talk about. And you'll, you'll die, but your picture will be up there. And that's no way to think and chase for immortality. Now, I'll tell you something. God doesn't have a problem with you chasing for immortality. And I want to just, this is what this little section of Scripture is about. James and John, it says, two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus. And they said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Unbelievable statement. They were pretty square at this time who he was. This was no genie in a lamp that you could only rub up against three times and some stuff would happen. This brother, for consistency over three years, had, had pretty much just opened their jaws, made them gasp and go, this guy's got it going on. The blind can see, the lame can walk, the ocean is stilled, we've seen him walk on water. That was impressive. So when you tell this guy, we want you to do for you whatever we ask, you got a good inkling that he could do it. Now what's amazing is that Christ's response to this was not, what are you doing? Haven't you learned anything yet? Don't you know it's not about you? What do you mean you want me to do for you whatever you ask? What Christ does is he says, what do you want? What do you want? What would you like me to do for you? What a great response. You know, when you say, God, I want you to do something for me, God will say to you, what do you, what do, you want? What's interesting is there's a great place in Scripture where God was leading the nation of Israel, in fact, and he was trying to call them to live a life on purpose and full relationship with him. But Israel kept saying, we don't want that relationship with you. We want this. We want this. Give us that. We want to be like those nations. We want this experience. And it says in the scripture, you know what God did? It says that God gave them 
the desire of their heart. He gave it to them. You want that? You can have it. But then it says right after that in Psalm 106, verse 15, it says, but he sent leanness to their soul. In other words, I'm going to let you have what you think you want, but you're going to find out in getting what you think you want, you're not going to get what it is that you're chasing. There will be some moments of sweet satisfaction, but it will always create in you a panging and a longing and a need and a hankering for something more until you find what it is that you were created and designed for. And so Jesus is going to say to James and John, let's see what you've learned in hanging out with me for three years. What do you want? And they said, we want to be essentially great. We want you, because we understand that you've told us now three different times that you're going to be turned over, crucified, you're going to be buried. You're, you're leaving the scene right here, so somebody's got to take your mantle. Somebody's got to lead these crowds. We want to know. And in fact, you told us you're going someplace to prepare a home for us, that we're going to come to you and we're going to be with you. And we want to know in this world that you're going to, that we can be one on your right and one on your left, that we can be the, the main men after you. And Jesus said, are you sure you want to do what it takes to do to get to where you want to get? And they said, absolutely. He said, can you drink the cup that you need to drink to make that happen? They said, sure, without asking what that cup was. He says, fine, you'll drink that cup, but whether or not you'll get those positions are not mine to give. The others were indignant with them and angry because they kind of beat him to the punch. They found a more opportune time. You know what's even really amazing about this is when you read one of the other stories in, this, in the Gospels, you find out James and John didn't even go. They sent their mom to approach Jesus for this. You know, they may not like, you know, the fact that we did it, but he can't say no to good old mom. And so we find out really it was James and John who put their mom up to this, and their mom asked this question. And Jesus gathered them all together, realized that they were angry at James and John, that they had tried to put themselves in this position of greatness. And what Jesus does is he comes back around and he says, look, I don't want you all to be frustrated. What James and John wanted to be essentially great is what I designed them to be. And I want you to know that I'm going to tell you that the the way that you think you're going to become great is the problem. James and John thought it would be through political manipulation, through some strategic alliance that they could count on the old boy system and good old favor, that they would get to where they want to go. And and God's saying that's not the way it's going to happen. The way it's going to happen is you're going to become like I am. And the reason that nobody can have the seat that I'm going to have is nobody's going to be the perfect servant that I am. But if you will follow in my path and do as I did and give your life away as I'm giving my life away, then yes, somebody's going to sit at my left hand and somebody's going to sit at my right. And you know what? I want you to have that position. I want you to be as glorious as God intended you to be. I want you to be somebody he lifts up and says, you've been faithful in your service. And you know what the reward for faithful service is? The answer is the opportunity for more service. And that's exactly the way it is in your industry and your business. When you've got somebody that's faithful in executing a task and a job for you, what do you want to do? You want to give them greater opportunity. You count on them more. And you put them in positions of greater and greater influence in your life. In your kingdom, if there's somebody that is faithful to you to execute what it is that you know needs to be accomplished, and that person pulls through, you keep giving them more opportunity. That is true if they're your lawyer that is true if it's your son, that is true if it's your accountant, your architect, your teacher, your friend. And it's true of you with God. And if there, there's nothing in this world that is greater than God saying, this is my go-to guy. And I can count on him to be faithful. He's faithful with his family, so I'm going to give him several families. He's faithful with several families. I want to give him a different platform. And sometimes we'll never see, even on this earth, because God says, this isn't the place that you're ultimately going to get greater opportunities to serve me. 
But this is the place where we determine who it is that really wants to serve me and live their life on purpose and yoke themselves with me. Now, let me just share this with you, some observations I make from this little section right here. First of all, even the best of us, even the best of us are capable of the worst of men. What I mean by that is there's none of us that is not capable of making some terrible decisions or, uh, if you will, defaulting to some poor strategies at some point. What basically happened right here is James and John forgot the deal. They forgot that they were made for God, not that God was made for them. They, they thought that God existed for them. And one of the very first things we talked about when we were here is we realized, man, to get this thing right, you have to understand it's not about you. It's not about me. We exist for God. God does not exist for us. We want God to be this genie in a lamp that we can rub and get what we want from him when we want what we want from him. And God's going to say, you know what, you don't even know what it is that you should want to get what you want if you could rub up against me that way. So I'm going to teach you where life is, I'm going to call you to where life is, and ultimately you're going to find out that when you understand it's not about you, that God doesn't exist for you, but you exist for God, and you've got to stop trying to manage it and run it that way. All of us are capable at any moment of saying, no, this is really about me. And the day that we forget that is the day that we're going to go down. And my friends, my close friends, and then guys that aren't so close, that all the time around me, I'm hearing of another guy that said, you know what, this is really about me. And the scriptures remind me all the time, Todd, beware you who think you stand lest you fall. And I am constantly before the Lord, reminding him, Lord, you know what, if you don't hold me close, if you don't keep me on task, if you don't constantly retrain this mind, then I'm going to be capable of the worst of men. You know, I, one of the things I did, guys, you know, uh, when I was up there speaking, they put me in this hotel. You know, that hotel had HBO. Uh, there's shows on HBO uh, certain nights of the week that I guarantee you, if I had HBO at home, I, I could not not watch them. And the problem with not, not watching them for me is that, you know, watching them is one thing, but I know this. I know you sow a thought, you're going to reap a habit. I know you sow a uh, you sow a thought, you're going to reap an action. You sow an action, you're going to reap a habit. You sow a habit, you're going to reap a character. You sow a character, you're going to reap a destiny. And so I, I had guys that said, look, man, I'm going to be in this hotel, and I, I want you to, I, I, don't want, I don't want to be playing this game, you know, where's ESPN, you know? Oh, th- well, that's, that isn't ESPN, but that is an interesting sport. <laughs> I shouldn't watch that sport. All right. And I just play that little game back and forth. If I don't just say, guys, I, I don't want to go there. I don't need that kind of crud in my mind, because I will, you know, um, I'll run there easily by default. I know that it is in my nature to do that. And so I was on the phone with those guys before I left. I was on the phone when I got there. I was on the phone the next day with them. And I said, man, you need to encourage me in this area. Hold me accountable in this area. I haven't been there in a long, long time. But I can tell you this. I'd love to start going there again. You know? Boy, when I was in elementary school and junior high, I saw more pornography than you'd ever think a guy should see. And some of that stuff is still burned in my brain. And the, and, the, and the lie and deceitfulness that there's still life there is still real fresh to me. And i got to tell you, I run scared, not just from that, but from a lot of things that I know can drag me down a path. And if I stand here before you guys in 40 years still faithful, it's going to be because I'm well aware of the fact that I am capable of the worst of men. And so I have to order my life and discipline my life and live on purpose in community, in connectedness, 
in relationship with God and his word and in prayer, or I will be next on that list. Secondly, it says a desire, you know, what I get from this, the desire for greatness is not the worst thing of men. It's what you were designed for. This is what I want you to understand in the midst of this. God doesn't have a hard time when you say, I want to be essentially great. I want to be great in the eyes of God. He has no problem with that. There's not a guy in this room that wants to go, I want my life to matter. I want my life to count. I want the sovereign of the universe to go, now there's a man. But here's the next little blank. God doesn't condemn our longings. He simply corrects our strategies to satisfy them. Guys, part of being made in the image of God is that you are to bear his glory. Part of us turning from God's ways is what causes the glory that God embedded in us to be tainted. That's what it means when it says, for every man sins. Every man chooses less than what God would have them choose. And in doing so, becomes less than God created them to be. All has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. We talked about this before, that the image of God is defaced in all of us in different ways, but not erased in any of us completely. God doesn't want us to meet our God-given desires in a God-forbidden way. James and John, you want to be great? That's fantastic. And I'm going to tell you, this is the way, essentially, to greatness. So what is it? Let me just tell you, if you have your little pen, you look at the last line up there in Mark 10:45, and if you can circle two words, two verbs, two actions that will make you essentially great, it says this, for even the Son of Man did not come to be, ser- to be served, but to serve and to give his life away. And men, if you want to know what essential greatness is in the eyes of God, there it is, to serve and to give. And to be a man that finds who God designed you to be and put yourself in that puzzle piece and then let him go. That picture looks like it should look. And what we're going to talk about today and what we're talking about today is living life on purpose, is knowing who God created you uniquely to be and doing everything you can to excel as the piece that God made you. Now some of you guys go, you know what, I don't like the fact that I'm this piece over here that's not as attractive or not as, I'm not Gus's head. I'm the horse's hoof in this puzzle piece. And you might not like that, but I'll tell you this, that if God created you to be the horse's hoof, if he created you to be a, just a bland meadow scene in a puzzle where you don't think you stand out, you need to know this. You've got the exact same opportunity to receive the fullest reward as Cinderella's face. Because God rewards you for faithfulness, not for where you fit in that puzzle. It's for how you fit where God designed you to fit. And if you are a one-talent person or a five-talent person or a ten-talent person, and you look at the story of how Christ rewards each of those, every single one of them got the same reward. When you fully used what God gave you, you got the same reward. Now, there are certain things, another parable, where we've all been given the same thing. And God says, how you use that same thing that I've given you, there'll be varying rewards in that. But when it comes to talents, when it comes to what piece you are in the puzzle, you might go, how come I'm not Cinderella's head? Why am I Gus's head? Why am I that black-blue screen over there? That doesn't really stand out at all. And I'll just tell you this. If you fit in the piece of puzzle that God designed you, you will receive every bit as much of a reward as the puzzle piece that is Cinderella's head. Because one of those pieces missing ruins the whole puzzle. And God says, you just make sure you find out who I designed you to be and be it recklessly. Here we go. Let's talk about some of these. You're not here, ultimately, guys, to get something out of life. 
And the world tells you that. Madison Avenue is going to bombard you with that. You're here to get all you can out of life. Go for the gusto. Gusto, you are here to add something to it. Just flip your little sheet over, and there's a couple of these verses I want to look at. Um, this is what Paul said in Acts 20, 24. He said, but my life is worth nothing. He determined. This is one of his purpose statements. He's got a bunch of them all throughout the Scripture. My life is worth nothing unless I use it for doing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about God's wonderful kindness and love. This is one of the things that uh, God said to his servant Jeremiah at one point. Now gird up your loins and arise. Speak to them all which I command you. Don't be dismayed before them. In other words, don't be dissatisfied for what I created you to do, or I will dismay you. <laughs> I love that. That's God just telling it like it is. If you don't do what I ask you to do, your life will not be what you want it to be. And you can have the life that you think you want, but I will send leanness to your soul. You don't have to go to Nineveh, Jonah. But if you don't go where I called you and created you to go, you're not going to like where you choose to go. Because I love you enough to never let your life have the peace that it can have and should have until you are in the place that will give you the peace that you ultimately are looking for. I just made this little observation based on that little deal right there in, in Jeremiah. If you are a consumer of resources and not a provider of results, in other words, if you take up time, space, and resources, and you don't provide any results for that, then you're dead weight and you need to be dealt with. That's true, and guys, you think about that as leaders in business and industry. If you've got something that is sucking resources from you and not fulfilling what it was created to fulfill, if there is no benefit to the cost, then something needs to be done with that thing that is a drain on resources. And God loves you enough if you're his son to deal with you. And if you don't get dealt with, if you're not held accountable to your irrelevance, then you've got bigger problems. Look what it says right there in um, 1 Corinthians 6.20. It says, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Gang, God paid a great price for you, as it says in this book, I think, somewhere. You were not bought at the dollar store. So you've been bought for a great price, so you ought to make sure that you are faithful to whom much is paid for. We expect a lot of it, all right? If I go down to you know, Al's junkyard today and buy a $400, you know, rent a wreck. I don't expect it to perform like if I went to some Lexus dealership and dropped, you know, 80, 80K for a car. And when something is paid a deep and dear price for, you expect it to perform, don't you? Well, I want to tell you what, you have been bought with a price, a high price, and God expects you to be worth everything that he purchased you with. There is no response which is too radical. This is what Romans 12:1 says. I urge you, therefore, brethren, in light of God's incredible mercy, in light of the fact that you have been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, I urge you to give your entire life as a living and holy sacrifice, which would be then acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Men, if you are not performing to the fullest of how you were created to perform, then you are creating frustration with the one that purchased you. And he wants to call you to greater performance. Now, by performance, don't think just in terms of what you do. It's not a salute and say, I'm going to go run hard for you, God. Okay? I'm going to say at the end, your character matters more than your career. You're a human being, not a human doing. 
By performance, I mean you were created for a purpose, relationship with God. And if you are about something else than living in unity and relationship with God, then you're out of step with him. And when you live in relationship with God, you're empowered to be the person that he wants you to be as you love your kids, love your wife, serve your neighbors, make a difference in your workplace, and live a life that is marked by holiness. It is. There is no in. There's no, uh, nothing unreasonable that you could do in service for God in light of what God has done for you. You're not here to get something out of life, we said. You're here to add something to it. Next blank. You were saved, gang, for good work. You were saved for good service. You're not saved by good service. I want to just make this clear again so that you don't confuse this. You were saved to do good work. You are not saved by good works. That's the little verse in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. It's on the back there. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for, uh, beforehand, uh, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared, prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. You are not saved by your good work but you are saved for the purpose of doing good work. Do you understand that? That is significant, and that is one of the things that delineates the faith of Jesus Christ from every other faith system in the world. What we do is a response to what he has done. We don't do anything to make him do something for us. Until you understand there's nothing that you can do to make God love you more and nothing you can do to make God love you less, you don't understand grace. But until your life fully responds to grace by saying, God, I'll do anything in response to you in light of what you've done for me, you probably also haven't fully understood grace. You are saved by faith alone, gang. But the faith which saves is never alone. It's always got a right response with it. A non-serving servant. What would you call a non-serving servant? A servant who doesn't serve is a what? A non It's a non-servant. That's what a servant does. A servant serves. A non-serving servant is a non-servant, which means if you're a non-servant, that you don't have a master or a king. You can tell me all day long that God is your king, that you live your life on purpose with him, but if you don't live in the fullness of obedience and availing and responding to him, then your life betrays your profession. And if you are not actively engaged in serving God for the sake of his kingdom then you can tell me all day long that he's your king, but if you're a non-serving servant, you are a non-servant. If you're a non-servant, it means that you don't have a master or a king. And we're just being consistent enough as men to tell each other that. If you were created to become like Christ, gang, then you were created to become a servant. You know, there's two places in the Scripture that specifically say this is an example for you. One's in John 13, one's in 1 Peter chapter 2. Just turn your little sheet over and you'll read them right there with me. Jesus just got through as an example of how we should be attentive to the needs of one another, washing the feet of his disciples. That's what's going on in John 13. And he says, you call me teacher and Lord. You're right. I am Lord. I am God. If then, as God and your teacher washed your feet, I saw the need that was there, cared for you and provided for your need, so you also ought to do this with one another. I gave you an example that you should do it as I did. Do you hear what he says? This is one of two places in the scripture that God specifically says, this is an example. 
You want to be like me? Then you must do this kind of thing. It's not washing feet. Washing feet is a type of what the type of person that God wants you to be does. I did this as an example. Just like I served you, you should serve one another. A slave not greater than his master, nor is the one sent greater than the one who sent him. Now watch this. If you know these things, you are blessed. What? If you act on what you know. Jesus said there's a wise man who, you know, the person who hears my word and does my word is like the wise man who built his house on a rock. But the person who hears my word and doesn't act on it, it doesn't matter. In fact, all he does is create greater judgment for himself because he knew how he should build his house and he didn't build it that way. And Jesus is saying the exact same thing here. You want to know, guys, you want to be great? This is the key to greatness. Get in step with God and serve him with reckless abandon, consistent with how he has shaped you and made you and created you. The first place that it says explicitly in the scriptures in John 13, this is an example. Be a servant. The second place is in 1 Peter chapter 2, where it says right there, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ Jesus suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So you want to know the two places in scripture that it specifically says, here's an example, you ought to be a suffering servant. Gang, what's a servant do? A servant does a lot of things. A servant doesn't mind when they're treated like a servant. You know, sometimes I'm doing stuff and, and, and people, um, you know, act like that's exactly what he should do. And I kind of go, hey, man, don't they know who I am? Don't they know they should stop and go, that's really great, Todd, that you're doing that. And when I'm doing that and when I'm thinking that way, I'm not acting like a servant. Because a servant doesn't stop and say, hey, do you see that I'm doing what I'm supposed to do? I'd like everybody to stop and take note that I'm doing my job. That's what a servant does. He does his job. A servant doesn't do things to obligate others to do things for him. You don't serve God, so God's going to be obligated to do good things for you. And you don't serve other people, so somehow they will be obligated to say yes to you when you've got an ask of them. You know, there's lots of folks that sometimes want to do stuff for people like myself that are in the ministry. And one of the things I tell folks that are in the ministry, especially in the early years, is you've got to be very careful who you say yes to. Because it's a lot like um, uh, in, in the movie It's a Wonderful Life, right? When uh, uh, Jimmy Stewart's character is sitting there by Mr. Potter, and Mr. Potter is uh, making an offer to him. And he says, you know, Mr. Potter, you're not selling. What do he say? You're buying and there's lots of folks who serve, but they ain't serving, they're obligating. And when you serve in order to get somebody to owe you something, you can be sure that you're not serving. You are manipulating. And that's not what a servant does. God owes us nothing, and when we walk in the way that God wants us to walk, God, by the way, will tell us that he's not going to forget us. Just so you can hear this, read Hebrews 6.10. It's one of my favorite verses in the scripture. It's about, you know, a, uh, you know, a quarter of the way up. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and still ministering to the saints. But we can't keep looking for it here. But you can be sure every time that we're faithful as a servant, God takes note and he can't wait to celebrate that with us. A servant is faithful. A servant is somebody that doesn't uh, serve and expect to be rewarded or thanked in the short fall. It doesn't uh, get upset when he's treated like a servant. doesn't serve to obligate others. Servant sees and initiates and helps other people. I had a guy ask me this this week. He said, Todd, how come you're 
consistently in relationship with folks, and there's all kinds of people around people, but you're the only one that shows up when they're in that crisis and has that hard conversation with them to either you know, bring what they're doing to the light or to really walk them through this difficult thing. They go, why? How come you're always the one that's in the middle of these things? And you know what my response was? My response was simply this, because I have the sense that when I'm walking down the road and I see somebody in a ditch, that that is my poor victim in my Samaritan's ditch. And I don't want to walk by on the other side and go, surely somebody else is closer to them than I am. Surely somebody else will see that and do something about it. And when I come across something in a friend's life, even though I've not been the closest person to them in the last six months or six years sometimes, but when I hear about it and somebody says something to me and they pull me into it and I get gone, the next thing I know, I sometimes find myself on a plane in a different city with some of these guys that I've shared life with, and they go, how come, Wagner, you're the one that always does something? And I look at them, I go, the question isn't why am I the always one that does it? The question is, why haven't you done it? Because a servant doesn't wait for somebody to say, would you please do this? A servant is somebody that when they're walking down the road and they see somebody in a ditch, that's their victim in their ditch and God expects us to love them and there's not a person in your life that when you come across an issue that God can use you in their life that he doesn't expect you to deal with it no matter how awkward and messy it gets love your neighbor who's your neighbor the answer biblically is whoever you're near at that time that needs something that you can provide True greatness, uh, uh, you know, this, you, you will never have a life of meaning until you have a life of ministry. That's just what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, 24. You try and get life in your own terms, control your life, make yourself master, you're going to lose your life. But you give your life away and you'll find life like you've never known it. True greatness is not defined, men, according to Mark chapter 10, 35 through 45, by how many men serve you. True greatness is defined by how many men you serve. True greatness is defined by how many men you serve. You know, we know that. We go to funerals. You know what makes a great funeral? It's not when a bunch of folks came and said, we work for that man. We came to this funeral because that man was our boss, and boy, he drove us like nobody's business. There's a thousand employees that work for him. No, we go to funerals, and the lives that we venerate is when there's a thousand people that are out there to say, man, we thank God for this servant in the way that he blessed every one of us in different ways based on how he was shaped. How you serve, guys... How you serve and where you serve is determined by how God made you as his man. Now, how you serve is determined by, let me just give you these blanks very quickly, and I'll tell you this. If you've always wondered what, always wondered what it is that God wants you to do, we have an entire ministry set up to come alongside of you to help you discern how you have been shaped by God. And we want to help you with that. You can write that down there on that sheet. I want to know how God made me. What is the, the, the S is spiritual gifts. But each of you, if you're in a relationship with God, but each of you has received a gift. It says, employ it then in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. There are guys in this room that have a, a, the gift of, uh, of teaching, the gift of serving, the gift of hospitality, the gift of shepherding, the gift of leading and administration, the gift of giving. There's, there's all kinds of different gifts. And every single person who lives in a relationship with God He embeds in them a primary gift, sometimes two. And the more you mature to become like Christ, the more it's difficult to find out what your primary gift is. But every guy in this room has got a gift who's in relationship with God. And you've got to find out what that gift is. You find out about that a number of ways. The first thing you should do is you should go, you know, 
where do I find myself drawn? Where do I find myself affirmed in what I'm doing? Second thing is heart. Your heart's passion. Where do you find yourself just constantly drawn? Is there a certain people group, a certain ministry type, a certain life stage that you just go, I love this opportunity? A, is your abilities. Every one of us has been given all kinds of different abilities. What are you good at? Some of you guys have a history in sports. Some of you guys have a history in math. Some of you guys have a history in music. Some of you guys are really good at, 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 at creating things visually. And every one of us has abilities that can be linked with our heart and the way that God's gifted us to be unleashed as his servant the way that only you can be unleashed. You know, the, the P is you're just your personal bent. Just who you are as a person. God's going to honor that in the way that he uses you. One of the great things about the scriptures, 40 different authors that were written over 40 generations, 10 different civilizations, 1,500 years. And the reason that there's one consistent vein of truth in it is because every one of those guys was used by the sovereign God to produce a perfect word. But the reason they're all so different in the way that the perfect word is communicated is because God never violated anybody's personality. And so you've got... Peter sharing his views this way, and, and Solomon sharing this way, and right on down through. And it's going to look a little different in you, but it's going to be divine and consistent with who you are. And then the E is your experiences. Man, there's some guys in this room that have been through some incredible stuff, that have been through a bankruptcy, that have been through business success. There's guys in this room that have been through trauma, that have been the son of a divorce, that have been through a divorce themselves, that have uh, understood what it is to be around an addictive person, that have been an addictive person themselves. Every one of your experiences becomes an opportunity for you to come alongside others in God's unique shape of you. Whatever you've done, I don't care how base and godless it is, even that, what you intended for evil, God can use for good. And so I'll tell you, man, I don't know where you're coming from, but, uh, but I want to tell you, God is anxious to get you back in the puzzle. And where you serve depends on how you're shaped. And you shouldn't be pushed someplace you don't fit. That last little deal right there is when you die, you will take your character into eternity, not your career. So who you are, guys, in the midst of this, what we're talking about is more important than what you do. You were created to be a kingdom builder, guys. That's what you were created for. Not a comfort builder. I think Rick Warren says not a wealth builder. Now, I'll tell you something. If you are gifted to make a lot of money, make a lot of money, but not for the purpose of making money, but for the purpose of building his kingdom, for the purpose not of building greater comfort for yourself, but to make a greater difference for him. And until then, gang, you determine your master. You will never have an ability to clarify your mission. And it gets right back to where we started this whole thing, right? It's not about you. Well, do you know that? And if it's not about you, then you've got to not... Quit saying, this is awkward, this is hard, this doesn't feel natural to my flesh. It's never going to feel natural to your flesh because your flesh, like mine, is bent towards evil. But God doesn't tell you to uh, modify and curb your flesh and restrain your flesh. He tells you to crucify your flesh. He tells you the life that you now live, you should live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and delivered himself up for you. And he tells you that he ought to be a person, that your purpose in life is to do the eternal and timeless in a contemporary and timely way. You ought to live for something greater than yourself. You guys, like me, 
are who God specifically and sovereignly placed in the context of this generation and this moment in history. You were, like Esther, created for such a time as this. And the question is, will you participate with God in those purposes? Lots of guys want to. The soul of the sluggard is the same as the soul of the diligent. They both crave the same thing. But only those that will partner with God and pursue godliness and pursue his purposes will experience the life that we were designed to experience and be marked by the glory that God intends for us. Guys, you let us know how we can partner with you and continue to encourage you. Know this. There's no puzzle piece that looks good alone. God wants you to be a part of his tapestry. So you've got to snap yourself in in relationship. If we can process this or why it makes sense that Jesus Christ alone is master and Lord of your life and how true life is there and how that has changed us in the way that Carlos testified last week for us, we love nothing more than to spend some time with you. Would you let us know how we can serve you? And thanks for sharing these five weeks, guys. And we'll be praying that you will continue to live life on purpose. Have a great day.